Thank you. As we study the life of Jesus, the Gospels reveal that the most important disclosures of who he was and who he is is revealed in the last week of his life. This is indeed Holy Week, a week of ups and a week of downs, or better yet, downs and an up, right? So just think of all the mixed emotions that we will endure if we're trying to reflect on the last week of Christ's life. There are hosannas, and then there's all this stuff in the middle. There's confrontation, and there's betrayal, and denial, and trial, and scourging, and crucifixion, and a burial. And then we hear uttered, perhaps the most electrifying statement made in all of the New Testament or ever communicated by a human being, which changed the course of history, that is, he is not here, he is risen. Palm Sunday is then at best kind of a temporal win and at worst an illustration of the fickle nature of us, of human beings, who will one day laud someone only to turn around in ridicule and scorn or vacate. Our week begins with shouts of praise. Our week reveals thereafter the duplicity of Judas, the denials of Peter, there's the weakness of the disciples who fled the city, there's the muddled mind of Pilate in its ambiguity, there's death between two thieves, one would curse, one would ask for forgiveness, there's the humility of a borrowed tomb, not a paid-for tomb. Then we'll go on to see the sheer glory in seven days. That is Easter Sunday and a self-induced resurrection over death, which has not happened before Jesus and has not happened since Jesus. I think we would all agree that the emotions surrounding the last week of Jesus' life are quite complex. Scholars say that Jesus on Palm Sunday likely planned his own parade. That itself is a paradox because up until that moment, Jesus tediously sought his own obscurity, not allowing people to communicate his godness. The one who had avoided publicity then seems to break out and reach for it. The city is jam-packed with pilgrims, sojourners, travelers from all over the world, and, and Jesus enters Jerusalem in a way that part of the entire city focuses on this event. Now with that prelude, I'd like to ask you to please stand with me, and we're going to read Luke's account. Beginning with verse 28, 
After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You may be seated. Jesus secures a beast of burden, an animal that is historically used to carrying heavy loads. The donkey, unlike in our culture, was a noble animal in Jesus' culture. However, horses were reserved for war. A donkey was ridden in times of peace. Jesus was indicating with his selection that he wasn't the war king that the populace demanded. And what's interesting is that in the book of Revelation, in Jesus' second coming, we're told, I believe it's in chapter 19, 
that Jesus is not on a foal, he's actually on a white horse. And he's not meek and mild and coming in peace. He's coming to declare a war on Satan. His demeanor is not nonviolent. He has a sword protruding from his mouth. And on his thigh is tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a completely different picture. But for now... For now, he comes in peace. The simple statement to the owner of the foal was, the Lord has need of him. The Lord has need of your animal. Either this was prearranged, or the Lord confirmed the animal's purpose, the exact animal's purpose in the heart of the animal's Owner, we don't know. Even in Bible times, most people don't donate their assets. You see what I did there? See that? The cheers that greeted Jesus were tremendous, there was an uproar. The disciples were caught in the spirit of things to such a degree that the Pharisees rebuked them and said to Jesus, you should really get a handle on the extravagant claims of those who follow you. They keep saying that you're God. The day begins with hosannas. It ends with Jesus weeping over the great city. So what can we say about this first day of Holy Week that would apply to you and that would apply to me? First, Jesus' arrival was welcomed with appropriate joy. Jesus' arrival was welcomed with appropriate joy. And I trust that he is welcomed in your heart today with appropriate joy. Jesus had been drawing monstrous crowds for quite some time. He was a bit of a superstar by now. The people heard him gladly. There is every indication that he was met by droves of people everywhere that he went. His words spoke to the heart. They rang with truth as they do today. He was commanding in his authority and presence. And the things that he did were absolutely miraculous. Blind people, their eyes were healed. And lame people stood up with their legs full of strength. And those confined to mats of suffering stood up to carry their mat under their arm away with them to find for it another purpose, another individual to serve. The word that surged through everyone who pressed in to touch Jesus was absolutely a word of hope. Because maybe if we can just get there, he'll, he'll heal us. He'll change us. He'll set us free. 
He'll cast our demons out. He'll take care of our anxieties, our depression. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was absolutely welcomed with sheer joy, with delight, as he should have been. And you can greet him with joy today too. He can lift you up today too. Starting today, you can hope again. If you don't know the Lord, he's here for you. He'll enter this room. He'll enter your heart. You can carve out space for him. Second, his arrival preceded betrayal. His arrival preceded betrayal. Here is the brutal and ill-timed truth. The triumphal entry on Palm Sunday would mark the end of public approval for Jesus. It happened like the flip of a switch. In verse 39 even of today's text, the religious elite are expressing their disapproval at Jesus' popularity. It'll continue to go downhill as our week ahead of us unfolds. A deadly coalition of religious hierarchy and Roman government and betrayal even within the 12, his closest of friends, would lead ultimately to his death. While he sweated blood in Gethsemane, some of you just returned from the garden, his disciples fell asleep. Jesus asked them to keep watch for one hour and they napped, even after Peter had confidently stated, we will not go away. You are of utmost importance to us, Jesus. If anybody's ever kept lookout, we're going to keep lookout. Our eyes are peeled. Indeed, they were just the opposite direction. And here we are, some 20 centuries later, still feeling in our bones the ambivalence of this day and what it means, the peaceful, full, such a powerful statement about what Jesus embodied, a kingdom not of this world, and only a few days later to be betrayed by antiquity's version of a handshake One kiss, that's Jesus. He was on his way to Calvary, even, carrying the cross, back lacerated by scourgings from a cat of nine tails, a crown of thorn on his brow. Do you recall what happened? He stumbles under the weight of the cross, surely, Surely one of his disciples would be there to take over for him. 
Surely one of the devoted, surely one of the twelve, especially one of the inner three, would leap from the crowd the most important opportunity of volunteerism ever in the history of the early church. At Tuesday evening sportsman's banquet, we had 220 volunteers. 220 volunteers. My dad came over from his church in Concord. They were amazed by the number of volunteers who had cleaned up the kitchen and all the rooms, mind you, by the time that the event concluded. It was incredible. We fed some thousand people with volunteers. It was all done. We broke down this display with a bunch of deer heads on it and went home. Surely on this day, a single volunteer would step up to serve. But some stranger, Simon of Cyrene, had to be volunteered by the commander of a Roman soldier. Why were those who laid down their coat suddenly AWOL? Where were those who said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Here's the takeaway, church. The voice of the people cannot be relied upon. It can't be. Today's hero is tomorrow's crow. Crowds have a short memory. It is a fickle voice that says Hosanna. Years ago, Marvin Griffin ran for governor of Georgia against a man by the name of Carl Sanders. Marvin's strategy was to have all of these barbecues across the state of Georgia, barbecue dinners, and 12,000 people came out to Statesboro to eat Marvin's barbecue, and yet Marvin lost decisively. Marvin held a news conference and said this. They ate old Marvin's barbecue. But they didn't vote for old Marvin. People will eat your barbecue. Are you aware of this? (laughs) And not vote for you. It's the fickle nature of the crowd. They're usually asking the question, the crowd, what have you done for me today? Last week, I got to spend a couple days with just a sage pastor by the name of Larry Osborne, who had a church of 10 plus thousand, multiple campuses and sticky church. And he says, Zach and company, there were about nine of us there. You are today's bartender. (laughs) You're just the bar, you're the favorite bartender. And if you don't become the favorite, they'll find a new bartender. (laughs) 
And if they can't find a bartender they like, they'll find another bar. It's just the nature, see. It's our nature. I'm in the same boat. It's human nature. Number three. Jesus' arrival was accompanied by tears. Jesus wept because he knew the condition of the people and their need for himself. Jesus had come to change their hearts, not the government. There are only two instances in the New Testament when Jesus wept. The first was when Jesus heard about the death of his friend who? Lazarus, he wept bitterly, and then Jesus gave Lazarus a new beginning, so there was no more need for weeping. The second here in the Psalm Sunday narrative was when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Because he sees it as a place of lost opportunity. He explains his mission over and over. They never quite get the message. Even within his close circle, one of them would deny him to a teenage girl around a campfire. Wouldn't you agree that's a terrifying thing to be by a teenage girl around a campfire? Another would betray him. All would flee the city When the chips fell except for one, one of the 12. I mean, this was enough to make anybody weep, wouldn't you say? And Jesus persisted in going into the heart of Jerusalem because he loves people and he loves the lost. The very people who disowned him, he persisted to die for. In church family, you and I are to persist together because we love lost people, because we pity lost people, because we want them to come know the Lord. Jesus wept because of the reality that some in Jerusalem didn't know him because some of you do not know him. He wept because he knew they would not respond. They would reject him. Here's the good news. You don't have to reject him today. You have until your last breath to accept Jesus and his death on the cross for your sake. This doesn't have to be a missed opportunity for you. In fact, 101 people on Tuesday night at the sportsman's dinner met Jesus. They showed up looking for some alligator to eat. They left having been introduced to the Lord, the creator of the universe. And in large part, I'll tell you, that was made possible because of 220 volunteers who weep over their city. 220 volunteers 
who are in some ways like the owner of the donkey. Someone told them, the Lord needs what you have. And they said, here, Lord, you can have what I have anytime. You can have my talent. You can have my resources. You can have my time. I am yours. I will deep fry alligator for you if it means somebody coming to know Jesus as Lord. The Lord needs my help? I'm in, they say. See, one question that challenges us on Palm Sunday is this. What can I give to my Lord? What does the Lord have need of? How can I help persist in saving my city? Where can I give my gifts to his glory? I'm weeping right along with him. I just want to see people come to know Jesus. So Lord, we pray that you would help us reach this lost city. Lord, North Charlotte, Lake Norman, God, help us be broken by what breaks your heart. Lord, help us not to become so enamored by bunnies and eggs and nice outfit threads that we miss Easter, the mission for which you died. Lost people. Lord, I pray that you would pull us into your purpose this holy week. Lord, that we would not be ambiguous, that we would not be fickle, that we would be fully devoted, fully attentive to you and your plan and how we might be used to reach the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning?
I'd like to ask our prayer teams if they could please come down to the front and make themselves available. And I'd like to ask you, is there anyone here who would say, Jesus, you are far from just my favorite bartender. I want to love you and serve you and be devoted to you for all of my days. Come hail or high water, I am with you until the very end, I devote my life to you. 
If that's you, will you raise your hand this morning just in a sign of surrender to Jesus, your life to his lordship, your devotion to him? Awesome. And if you would say this morning, if you'd put your hands down, I have yet to receive Jesus as my savior and my Lord. I'm afraid I don't have any hot alligator available for you this morning, but Jesus makes available to you eternal life. Would anybody say, I want to become a Christian today? Today's my day. I'm not waiting any longer. I just want to become a follower of God. I want to trust in Christ. We will celebrate you. You will not find a more supportive, hospitable bunch than this one. Anybody here want to accept Jesus this morning? Just lift your hand where I can see you. Seems like every time I celebrate those who have already given their life to Christ and not seeing anyone else, and I sure will tell me that someone raised their hand to follow Christ. So I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, though maybe I can't fully see you along with everybody who's already professed Jesus. Would you just pray after me, Heavenly Father? Forgive me of my sins. I need salvation. I believe that you died, were buried, and rose again for my freedom, for freedom from sin, for freedom from addiction, for freedom unto eternal life with you. Thank you for preparing a home for me in heaven. I accept your forgiveness. I accept your grace. I accept your joy, your peace, your hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you help me celebrate what God did today? If you made a decision to accept Jesus, come down and let us know. We'd love to pray with and for you. If you uh, would like to take communion, I suppose we've already taken communion. So I won't be inviting you forward to do that. God bless you. We'll see you again soon.